This resource was made possible by USAID's VUCA Now activity. Hello and welcome to the VUCA Now podcast. I'm your host, Richard Crispin, CEO of Collaborate Up. Collaborate Up is a partner on VUCA Now, a USAID-funded project that supports learning and sharing across five implementing partners working to combat wildlife crime in Southern Africa. VUCA Now means wake up in Zulu and is a fitting name as the project aims to engage communities, law enforcement, the judiciary, and other stakeholders to take urgent action to combat the illegal wildlife trade and promote sustainable wildlife resources. Successfully combating wildlife crime often requires engaging the communities that live in and around wildlife. If, how, and when we engage communities can be a linchpin in these or any program that seeks to improve social or environmental issues. In our last episode, we examined how to define and identify the community and how to best engage with its gatekeepers. In our second episode, we'll examine the role of authority in community engagement. I'm once again joined by my colleague and Collaborate Up's Director of Practice, Beth Scorshad. Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Richard. I'm so glad to be here today. Let's just dive right in here. So we know there is no one-size-fits-all approach to effectively engaging a community, right, Beth? Yeah, that's exactly what we found. You know, communities are dynamic. They're constantly changing. So it makes sense that no two communities will be the same or even that one community will look the same at two different points in time. But one thing remains true for all community engagement, and that's that you must identify and engage those who hold authority in the community. To help us examine this point, we turned to Dr. Byron White. Dr. White is a national thought leader on achieving transformational change in educational outcomes. Dr. White really helped us to kind of peel back the layered issue of authority to figure out how to go about locating just the right people in any community. The first question is, who has capacity in this community to mobilize residents, right? Just who? And so we start there. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter if they care about the issue. You know, then it's, it's sort of, we're thinking about these things. Who else in the community is thinking about these things? So there's a bit of asset mapping that just has to happen, right, where you start with a visible group of leaders and you ask questions and you go further and you go deeper until you sort of identify the table. Hmm. So in our last episode, I know we talked about gatekeepers. So are gatekeepers and authority figures the same? That's a great question. They could be the same, but they don't necessarily need to be. So there might be a gatekeeper who is also an authority figure, but you might also have someone with authority or knowledge to help you with your work who isn't a gatekeeper. So really mapping the local decision-making practices and traditional authority structures within a community should enable you to uncover the various levels and hierarchies of authority in the community and to help you be able to differentiate between gatekeepers and authority figures. Well, in my work, it's almost always necessary to engage with community leaders or other formal representatives in order to get permission to carry out development activities. And in that sense, they, they do represent the community. There's often somebody you know, whose who, approval you have to get or a group of people whose approval you have to get. But for the reasons that I've just talked about, I think it's a mistake to think of any small handful of people, and often these are men in privileged positions, who have the right to represent the views, experiences, interests, or preferences of a much more diverse, heterogeneous group. So I think this is where we need to take care in ensuring that we identify, listen to, and work with a range of, of both formal and informal and less visible 
representatives of the community. So I think there's a difference between those who hold power over whether you can do that work or not, and then letting people be their own representatives, especially those who, are, who might be from my, minority or marginalized groups. Let them speak for themselves. So that was Dr. Rebecca Calder, a trained anthropologist and a gender and social inclusion specialist. So what I'm hearing from you and from Dr. Calder there is that it's really important to identify or really quickly identify where power lies in a community. That's exactly right, Richard. And it doesn't always reside where you might think. To help us think about this, to help us do this, Dr. White talked us through a series of questions that he often utilizes in community engagement work. If I asked you three questions, I can tell you who has the power in the relationship. Who controls the budget? Mm -hmm. Who um, hires and deploys personnel? And who approves the strategy? So if you tell me, point me to that direction, I will tell you, I don't, I don't care what you're doing, that's where the power rests. And everybody knows that. Right. So. Those are the gauges to me of community authority. Does the community have authority to decide how dollars are spent, decide how people's time is deployed, and decide what happens? Now, I'm the first to acknowledge that simply we institutions are in no ways, no ways equipped to hand that over. In fact, you sort of expose the real dynamics of power when you get there. But I will say that the, the, the intentionality of the organization should be to get as close to that as you can. The closer you get to it, the more authentic the engagement. The closer you get to it, the greater buy-in the community has. And I believe the greater opportunity for sustainability. So the three questions that Dr. White highlighted can help you to gauge who holds authority and where the power lies in a relationship. And this can be particularly helpful when you're working on behalf of an institution in community engagement. Dr. Calder recommends structuring meaningful community engagement around something pretty simple, listening. She says the first sets of community interactions you have should actively cultivate meaningful engagement and really shift power to those in the community particularly with those who hold authority. You need to elicit community expertise, shift the power dynamics, and make the conversation too directional. And do your homework. You know, there's loads, you're not the first person to have ever stepped in that community and tried to engage them. Talk to people, you know, who've worked in those, those, that community, that specific community, or those types of communities before. Read stuff, you know, read dissertations, talk to, you know, talk to people in the capital, whatever it may be. I think do your homework. Hmm. So I, I really love her call there to do your homework uh, before entering a community. But what does that really entail? Uh, can you tell us a bit more about exactly what we should do? Yeah, absolutely. So research and our own experts agreed that it's crucial to understand the history and context of the issue in the community and to really understand what has been accomplished by the community already and what's been accomplished by outsiders prior to you even getting there and to really acknowledge your limitations as an outsider. You know, when you start your outreach and are initiating conversations with authority holders, you need to show them that you understand the whole context that you're walking into. So you mentioned initiating conversations with the community. Let's assume you've identified and spoken with gatekeepers to get their approval to work in the community. Who do you start initial conversations with? What, what does that look like? Where, where do I go? What do I do? Well, Dr. White proposes starting off with what he calls 
the non-official official. So hmm. I guess not your typical authority figure. So first of all, I would say no, I wouldn't start with the officials. Some of it is understanding how the community operates. If I'm in Chicago, yeah, that grassroots person is the alderman because Chicago has 50 of them and they're integral to, integral to the fabric of local community life. In Cincinnati, it's not the community council member. It's just not the way. So some of it is knowing the local context, but in general, it's not the official. In general, it's the informal associations of residents. Like many things in community engagement, simply reaching out to residents or informal groups in the community isn't always easy. Research tells us that there can be a number of barriers to engaging these informal power holders in the community. Dr. Calder didn't accept that last point we made. She reminded us that it's important to reach out to underrepresented groups, no matter how difficult. Don't forget to ask who's not in the room, who's not here. Don't assume that those people who are officially representing the community are actually legitimate representatives of all interests and all interest groups. Communities exclude as well. They're really good at excluding members and excluding people from conversations. And it's vitally important to engage with those, you know, who are, who are silent or who are, who are invisible. So it sounds like community engagement needs to recognize and seek out diversity within the community, identify potential barriers, and design processes to eliminate as many as we can. Definitely. Being thoughtful, even about something seemingly easy like logistics, can really make a big difference in community engagement. Things like the location of your meetings and interviews, um, the number or type of interactions you're planning, transport, you know, how are people going to get to you? How are going to get people get to these locations? Uh, Childcare needs of the, of the community members, the use of translators. I mean, all these things impact who can participate in a meaningful way. So planning carefully around these logistics can really open up or limit your community engagement. So one last question. We, we've talked a lot about how to identify and engage authority within the community, wherever that authority might lie. But what about the community's own authority? How does that come into play? Yeah, that's a really good question, Richard. Both of our experts touched on this point, you know, throughout all the interviews we did with them. Both Dr. White and Dr. Calder believe that all community engagement should really strive to give authority to communities over their own problem solving. And while outsiders can certainly help and certainly support, ultimately community ownership is the most effective way to solve a problem. So while donors and others may not like it, <laughs> to arrive at sustainable and meaningful project outcomes, the institutions that enter the community from the outside must be ready and willing to relinquish control to community authorities and co-create projects and value community members as the real experts. Thanks, Beth. Thank you so much for those insights. Thank you so much uh, to, to Dr. Calder and to Dr. White and to all the other experts that you guys interviewed. We're looking forward to our third one coming up here soon. Stay with us. We'll see you next time on the Bucanal podcast. This resource was made possible by USAID's VUCA Now activity.